1: Mā come to to Māori and welcome to another edition of Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. I'm Aggie Dubo, and hopefully your morning is going well. Uh, let's see what's on the show today. Uh, the International Atomic Energy Agency has told Pacific leaders it is confident about a plan to release treated nuclear wastewater into the Pacific Ocean. Uh, Red Cross hoping to reconnect families displaced during Bougainville's decade-long conflict and yes, bus are celebrating their 44th Year of Independence today. Thank you for your company on this Wednesday morning. I'm Aggie Tobol. This is Pacific Beat. First, to some news overnight. Solomon Islands Prime Minister Manasseh Songaware has officially opened the Solomon Islands Embassy in Beijing. In a statement, Prime Minister Songaware said the opening of the embassy confirms relations between the two countries as firm and unshakable. Mr Songaware says Solomon Islands took the decision to establish relations with its eyes wide open and have not looked back since switching diplomatic ties back in 2019. The Seoul's government says they are also facilitating the processing of a new head of mission that will soon be announced once all formalities are completed. In a statement, Mr Songavari said the message to the world is we are growing, learning and adapting to a changing interconnected world. Our presence here in Beijing will advance us to progress and prosper. Uh, later in the show, we'll be joined by Pacific security expert Anna Poles to discuss Solomon Islands and China relations during Mr Songavari's visit to China. Now, the International Atomic Energy uh, Agency has told Pacific leaders it is confident about a plan to release treated nuclear wastewater into the Pacific Ocean. Now, Japan plans to begin discharges from the Fukushima nuclear power plant later this year. The IAEA has published a two-year safety review into this plan, saying it will have negligible impact on the Pacific. Director General Rafael Grossi is in the Cook Islands to present findings to Pacific nations and he spoke with Marion Farr.
2: What we've done is over a period of more than two years, our technical experts have been analysing the plan, the methodology that is going to be used to treat the water against a number of nuclear safety standards that exist which are quite specific on the radionuclides, the types of radionuclides, the amounts uh, of each one of those that exist in nature against those that could be dispersed into the environment, to make sure that the source water, as it is analyzed uh, in each and every batch that is supposed to be discharged, is even below, I would say, because this has been the approach, significantly below the maximum degrees uh, which are permissible according to these international nuclear safety standards. So once you are sure that this treatment cleanses, strips this water from most of the radionuclides, especially the harmful ones, then we can say, we can check that when you do that, you are not altering, you are not changing the uh, environment, the water, fish, the sediment. You are not causing any harm. You are not changing what is in nature already. This is what we have done.
3: There's been a lot of concern around the Pacific about this plan Are there any risks to the Pacific at all, in your view? Well,
2: two things. First of all, let me say that from the perspective of the IEA, we take these concerns very serious. We believe that at first sight, looking at this 1.4 or 1.5 million tonnes of accumulated water around the plant and when hearing that this is going to be discharged into the ocean, of course, there are concerns. We understand this. So the idea uh, for us, the mission, has been to, first of all, conduct a process of assessment which is uh, scientifically sound and in accordance uh, with the norms. Then, once this process was completed and I had the opportunity to hand it over to the Japanese prime minister, Then I felt that precisely respecting these concerns, it would be good and advisable for me to address them directly with those who have expressed uh, these concerns. And this is what has brought me this occasion to to the Cook
3: Islands. And, And back to my other question, are there any risks to the Pacific at all in your view? Well,
2: the answer is no. Uh, we say that the effects would be negligible. This means that the percentage, in this case of the one radionuclide that cannot be eliminated completely through this process, which is tritium, would be so low that would be perhaps not even traceable or indistinguishable from what it already exists in nature. Therefore, there would be no harm.
3: Pacific experts who were appointed to look into this plan reported that they did not have sufficient access to data and information to be able to make a decision on its safety. Was the IAEA granted unlimited access to information when conducting this review? Are you satisfied with uh, the transparency of, of the company and the Japanese government?
2: Yes, we are. Yes, we are. We would never, I would never come to a comprehensive assessment and publish a comprehensive assessment if I was not, or or if my experts had not been able to look into what they need to look. Apart from what we assess as being in the plan and being in conformity with these standards that exist, we have agreed, I have proposed to Japan, and Japan has agreed, that the IEA will continue monitoring, reviewing, corroborating all the information once this campaign starts. The IAEA will be monitoring the actual, if it, if it happens, because we have to um, not not forget that now Japan has to decide if they start with this. Once this starts, the IAEA will be there, will continue permanently reviewing, monitoring, assessing the actual operation, the water that goes into the ocean.
3: And just a little more on what what will that assessment look like and will it include monitoring in the Pacific of, the, of the, any impacts?
2: Absolutely, yes. Uh, it's going to happen is that we know the points of dispersion of the, uh, of the water and then there are certain methodologies to sample in different places uh, to sample the sediment, to sample fish, to sample the water, and then analyze it in our own laboratories and also through a network of inter-laboratory network that works with the IEA of independent laboratories in different parts of the world um, so that we have a perfect alignment of a scientific um, assessment and findings of what we see.
3: In your visit to South Korea recently, you were greeted by protesters at the airport. What, what sort of reception have you had in Rarotonga?
2: We didn't have any demonstrations as the ones you described in, in Korea. Here we have had um, very important discussions. I was a meeting with the Prime Minister of the Cook Islands, and then uh, I had a meeting with all the leaders of the Pacific Island Forum Uh, which is very important for me since I have been interacting with them from the beginning uh, of this uh, process. Precisely because in this region there is a history, a history that has not always been easy with the legacy of nuclear testing in the 1950s and 1960s and 1970s as well. So uh, it is obvious for me that anything that has any connection with uh, nuclear energy or atomic energy or things like this, immediately this provokes reactions and fears even uh, sometimes. But in the face of that, I think it's precisely my responsibility to come, to talk, to explain, to engage. And this is what I'm trying to do to the best of my ability.
3: And how do you feel the meetings have gone today um, during your time in the Pacific? The
2: dialogue was excellent. There were real
3: questions, answers that I hope
2: were satisfactory. So it was an honest and very professional exchange of views with the leaders. And I would like to um, emphasize and, and to say that I proposed to the leaders the establishment of a permanent, regular consultation process between the IAEA and the Pacific Islands Forum uh, to continue exchanging, to share our findings and to give them a possibility to continue interacting uh, with us so that the process may go on and this this confidence may grow for mutual benefit.
1: And that was Director-General of the International Atomic Energy Agency, Rafael Grossi, speaking with Marion Farr.
4: Pacific Beat.
1: Now to the Vanuatu Islands, Uh, they are making a last-ditch effort to halt deep-sea mining just days after a landmark deadline opened the way for mining permits. The International Seabed Authority, or ISA, is meeting in Jamaica over the next two weeks as it tries to hammer out rules and regulations for deep-sea mining. July 9th marked two years since the Government of Nauru wrote to the ISA, asking it to fast-track the process. With that time now up, the ISA will have to consider a commercial mining application, even in the absence of a regulatory framework. Uh, but Vanuatu, Chile, France and Palau have a proposal before the ISA to hold any permits until environmental protections are in place. Ralph Rengen-Vanu, Vanuatu's Minister of Climate Change Adaptation, is at the Jamaica Talks and spoke to Mackenzie Smith.
0: My main priorities for this meeting are to try and um, just delay any commencement of any mining in the deep sea until we've had time to properly evaluate and ideally um, until there are some sort of rules or regulations in place to guide any such activity. So really we're just trying to um, prevent any going forward to deep sea mining right now at this point. We want more consideration. We want a precautionary pause. We want um, the world community to uh, agree as one on what direction we're going to take with uh, possible deep sea mining. Given the support for deep sea mining, including from Pacific
4: countries such as Nauru and Cook Islands, do you think you've got a realistic chance
0: of getting this
4: proposal through?
0: I think um, with the recent approval of the... The so called high seas treaty um, biodiversity beyond national jurisdictions, there is a general feeling in the international community that we need to look more. Uh, we need to take um, issues of maritime ocean environments more seriously there was a um, there was you know the the, the recent just a few weeks ago adoption of, the, of that treaty uh, endorsement of that treaty at the United Nations General Assembly shows that there is a international feeling among all countries that we need to take we need to look more closely at uh, um, protection of, of the marine environment so I hope that that sentiment will come over into the ISA as well Uh, on this issue. And you've just come from another global meeting
4: with the International Maritime Organization where Pacific nations were pushing for a levy on greenhouse gas emissions from the global shipping industry. The outcome, which was to agree to cut emissions gradually in order to reach net zero emissions by or around 2050, fell short of that levy. How do you feel after that?
0: Well, it was uh, one of those outcomes where no one got what they wanted and everyone could agree to it. So that was basically the flavor flavor of it. Um, I think uh, when it comes to uh, climate change, greenhouse gas emissions reduction, it's always been a very uphill slope for, for the world particularly, you know, the high-emitting countries, the fossil fuel-producing countries. Um, It doesn't uh, really, you know, come into this, uh, very directly into this deep-sea mining um, debate. A lot of countries are trying to sell deep-sea mining as a solution to the climate crisis, which is total crap. Um, But... Uh, when it comes to that climate change space, I think the outcome of the uh, IMO was similar to what we see at COPS, where it's uh, quite frustrating for Pacific Island countries, but the, um, the level of cooperation was uh, markedly better at, uh, at the IMO than we generally see at COPS. Um, and it, it bodes well for the very strong actions we're going to have to take at the IMO to achieve Um, some of the outcomes we we sort of agreed on.
1: Ralph regan vanuatu's Minister for Climate Change Adaptation speaking there. Hey look, stay tuned uh, because we'll be catching up with Tanya with the latest in our news wrap. I'm Aggie Dubow and this is Pacific Beat. You're listening to
4: Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia.
1: A new partnership between the Bougainville government and the International Committee of the Red Cross hopes to reconnect families displaced during the island's decade-long conflict. Uh, the Office of the Missing, which opened last month in Buka, will also seek to provide closure for families in identifying people who died during the conflict. It's part of a broader effort in Bougainville to address the conflict's lasting trauma. Mackenzie Smith
4: reports. It's been more than 30 years since the Bougainville crisis ended, but for many families on the island, the conflict's impacts show no sign of disappearing. Up to 20,000 people are estimated to have died in the conflict from 1988 to 1998, and many of them remain unaccounted for, while tens of thousands more were displaced. Adriana caicedo Trujillo is Deputy Protection Coordinator for the International Committee of the Red Cross in Papua New Guinea. She says the opening of the Office of the Missing in Bougainville is an important step for families who continue to look for loved ones.
5: These families uh, have been very severely impacted by, by this situation. You can see it in, in emotional and psychological distress that they have suffered. As you can imagine, the impact of missing a loved one can be profound, uh, causing immense emotional and psychological distress. Also, uh, there is a um, financial hardship aspect.
4: Trujillo says those financial barriers can include resources for search efforts, legal fees and counselling, a burden often compounded when the missing person is the primary breadwinner. She says the officer's first priority is to establish a data system of missing persons.
5: Trust is, is very crucial for this process. We're talking about very sensitive information. We are talking about potentially people who, who were involved in the disappearance of their loved ones. They are still alive. Some of them are still alive. So all of the all of those things are are very complex and have many
4: sensitivities. Rose Pihe is a community worker who has been helping struggling families in Bougainville. She says the office of the missing is a sorely needed resource, but often reconnecting family members is only half of the work.
5: It can take a process to really uh, get the two two parties together. A process of like maybe counselling and. Trauma healing. So we have people that are qualified already here on Bougainville. We have these counselors as well in some communities.
4: So PH says the issue of missing persons is only part of a much larger trauma Bougainvillians have been left with following the conflict.
5: Our biggest issue that I see now is the issue of the impact that that generational trauma has on the, the youth. 13, 14, 15 years of age. These people might die away, but the next generation is here to stay. So, that's that's one of the target groups that uh, we are we are thinking of engaging with now to to start a, start some kind of training that can rehabilitate them. PH says she'd like to
4: see more support from the Bougainville government with these efforts. Adriana Casero Trujillo says the Office of the Missing has secured 5 million kina over the next five years from the government with further support from the ICRC. Still, it's unclear how long the work will take. Trujillo is hopeful the office will be supported for as long as it needs.
1: Mackenzie Smith reporting there. And stay tuned because, yes, we finally will be actually catching up with Talia with the latest in our news rep. I'm Aggie Dubol and this is Pacific Beat.
6: Join me, Sosafina Formoli, for On The Record, an hour-long deep dive into the music that has made an incredible range of artists from right across the Pacific. We'll discover stories behind songs of inspiration, songs of activism, songs of evolution, and songs of pride, as we chop it up with Pacifica musicians you already know and love, and hopefully some you'll be meeting and falling
3: in love with for the first time.
6: On the Record, Tuesdays at 4 o'clock PNG time on ABC Radio Australia.
1: And welcome back. It is time for our news wrap. We've got Talia in the studio right now. So, hey, how are you doing this morning?
6: I'm doing well.
1: (laughs) Hey, let's start in PNG, uh, where the government wants mandatory ID cards in the major cities.
6: Yeah, that's right. RNZ Pacific is reporting that the PNG government has announced plans to make identification cards mandatory in major urban areas first to be rolled out in Port Moresby and Leigh. Now, the move is said to have been prompted by violence in the capital last week with the PM, James Marape, saying everyone in the city would need ID that includes a valid reason for them to live there and be there. He says he wants to account for all the people in the city because problems seem to arise due to unplanned settlement in urban areas. Now, of course, this isn't the first time that such an idea has been rolled out. You might remember back in 2018, the government was forced to defend its controversial 2015 plans to register all of its citizens and issue them with photo ID. ID cards. Um, That was after accusations of stealing and mismanagement of funds for the rollout um, came out. And also they had an issue with the card printing machines because they were broken. So it'll be interesting to see how this attempt at those plans go. Yeah, very very interesting. Hey, let's go to Fiji now, where some interesting bills have been tabled for debate uh, on Friday. It feels like all the news is very interesting (laughs) today, maybe (laughs) just because I'm a journalist. Um, So yeah, let's start with the Interpretation Amendment bill, um, which on the surface doesn't sound like much, but it is a bill to remove the requirement for women to put their spouse's surname on their birth certificate. And that's because in Fiji, when a woman changes their name after marriage, they are then required to change the name on their birth certificate to that registered name. Now, women have argued that not only is this a long and arduous task to do all that paperwork to fix those documents, especially given their importance when trying to vote, trying to apply for a visa, all of that stuff. Um, they've also argued that the marriage certificate could be used as the verification of marriage and explaining the t- switch to the name. And then also quite simply, your birth certificate is the name exactly that you were given at birth and so why do you have to retroactively change it? Um, you know, it's not as if you're being born again when you get married. Um, Fiji Village reports that the Attorney General Siromi Turunga says consultations have been held with the public and with groups like the Fiji Women's Crisis Centre, the Fiji Council of Churches and a whole lot of other groups as well. Now, it's worth noting that Fiji first opposed the bill so debate on Friday is going to be interesting um, but of course the government has the numbers. The Minister for Women, Linda Tambuya says the time is now.
5: The women who, are, who need to change their IDs now is not just limited to the voter
6: ID card. It's now their passport, their driver's licence, their bank documents, wherever their names are used in their spouse's name held jointly, they need to change that. The women are being affected as we speak and this law needs to change so that there is justice for the women of this country.
1: Uh, and on Friday, though, the Parliament is also debating nightclub closing hours. Yeah, wow. it's going to
6: be a very busy Friday, definitely a one for people to watch. Um, Fiji Village also reporting that the debate on the opening hours of nightclubs under the Liquor Amendment Bill is going to be this Friday, and that is going to see potentially the nightclubs closing at 1am. Um, the Attorney General says that he brought it under Parliamentary Standing Order 51, so it could be debated without delay this week, despite opposition MPs opposing the bill. Now, in Fiji, nightclub operating hours are from 5pm to 5am, and you might remember that um, talk about reducing hours has been around since earlier this year, after the death of a 28 year old man who was assaulted outside a popular nightclub in Suva, sparking fierce public debate about the social impacts of nightclubbing and drunk fighting in the early hours of the morning. Now, nightclub Owners have expressed their concern, their economic concerns about what the reduced hours will mean. Um, they have instead blamed low police presence for the violence and public intoxication. So yeah, it'll be obviously Fiji Parliament on Friday is what you're going to be want to watching. <laughs> yeah,
1: it is such a hard thing to have to debate whether safety. Mm. Mm. and obviously tourism. What do you do there? So yeah, interesting. We'll be watching out for Friday. And finally, concerns over tuna migration patterns and deep sea mining.
6: Yeah, that's right. So this is from a study from the journal Nature Sustainability and they've found that deep sea mining could interfere with the migration of tuna that is expected to be driven by climate change to areas of the Pacific Ocean currently slated for mining activities. Now, the study co-author, Dr. Juliano Palacio, Abrantes, apologies for the pronunciations there, um, from the University of British Columbia, says there is already uncertainty about what the tuna will do with climate change and deep sea mining just. Adds to this. He says issues potentially impacting the fish could be plumes of sediment stirred up by the mining of sea nodules and also any associated noise or light pollution which could impact tuna and fish reproduction rates. Now of course the timing of the release of this studies I have no doubt is not coincidental, given as you heard earlier from the um, Vanuatu's Minister for Climate Change adaptation, Ralph Vanu, that the International Seabed Authority is currently meeting in Jamaica as we speak to negotiate deep sea mining regulations. So I think that this study might be some ammunition for those countries who are concerned. Of course, the tuna industry is not only an important food source for the Pacific, but nearly 60% of the world's tuna comes from fisheries in the Western and Central Pacific Ocean. And we know Pacific countries use that fishery revenue to help maintain essential services, hospital roads, road school, all of that kind of stuff. And we also know that tuna are highly migratory and move according to ocean conditions. The, you know, the government of Aotearoa um, pledged a whole lot of money at the, earlier this year to um, develop advanced warning system for tuna migration. So, of course, this is just another kind of issue that we're talking about. We've got the Fukushima water, we've got deep-sea mining, we've got climate change. It is all happening. In our very own backyard, <laughs> I might say. But,
1: yeah, look, thanks, Talia, for our news rep today. Now, the Australian government has called on Solomon Islands in China to immediately publish a new policing plan between the two countries, saying it's concerned the deal will invite regional contests in the Pacific. The concern, though, from Canberra comes on the back of Solomon's Prime Minister, Manasseh Songavare's visit to Beijing where he met with Chinese President Xi Jinping to discuss the two countries' new comprehensive strategic partnership. While there, Mr Songavare opened his country's first embassy in China and earlier signed an implementation plan on policy which appeared to formalise an existing chinese police training presence in the solomon islands a spokesperson for australia's foreign minister penny wong said the two countries should publish the policing plan immediately so the pacific family can consider the implications for our shared security so joining us live this morning to discuss the developments is massey university international security lecturer and pacific expert dr anna poles with it i say good morning
7: Good morning. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, absolutely, uh, Doctor. Can I ask? It's a bit late, though, to be talking about this potential for inviting regional contest, isn't it? I mean, the contest is already happening,
7: and Australia is one of those main contestants. Oh, absolutely. I, I think the ship has well and truly sailed in that respect, and we certainly see that contest playing out in the context of the security sector in Solomon Islands, for example, which is why there is so much concern with respect to this the implementation plan of the policing cooperation, MOU, between Solomons and China.
1: Yeah, because, I mean, it appears to be pretty strongly worded, uh, you know, the demand for transparency from Australia on this p- uh, policing agreement. Why do you think that is?
7: Well, I don't think that's all, at all surprising, and it's certainly consistent with the concerns that Australia and Canberra raised when Solomon Islands signed a security deal with China back in 2022. Uh, and there's been the you know, deep concerns since then about the lack of transparency with respect to these security agreements. But it also cuts both ways and the Pacific have also called for greater transparency as well uh, with Australia, for example, with respect to the direction of, of what many Pacific leaders see as increasing militarization of the region. So I think if we're going to be you know, absolutely uh, fair here, then we, we need to have a, a discussion about transparency across the board for Mm. all partners in the region.
1: Yeah, obviously, in his words, he's he's tried to establish these relations with, again, eyes wide open, have not looked back since switching diplomatic times back in 2019. I mean, your thoughts on that?
7: Look, I don't think that's particularly um, surprising. And and Prime Minister Sokowara has has, fairly successfully sought to hedge uh, you know, the two partners, Australia and, and, and China. And he has made it very clear, and certainly in the 45th anniversary of independence of the country last week, he pledged to remain neutral, not aligned with either side amid rising geopolitical tensions, and very clearly stated that his national interest is development. The challenge, though, is the unintended consequences uh, of that, and will he be able to continue to, to hedge the two countries?
1: So with the deals, though, that have been signed and the opening there of the embassy, I mean, yeah, how would you describe the significance of that trip that Songovari made?
7: Well, I think it's fairly significant. They um, signed uh, nine cooperation documents across development, trade, civil aviation, education, uh, the police cooperation, the implementation plan, customs and meteorology. Now, of course, you know, Documents being signed doesn't necessarily uh, mean that uh, activities will necessarily take place as a consequence of that, but it has elevated the relationship to a comprehensive strategic partnership between Solomon Islands and China. And it does give some interesting insights into the way that China certainly sees the relationship going and some not surprising language used in there about opposing um, hegemonism, which is a you know, key word for a United States, for example, uh, but but also in terms of deepening that relationship with Solomon Islands, uh, including Solomon Islands joining the group of friends at the Global Development Initiative, signing on to a number of key international initiatives that China is seeking to spearhead. So it is certainly a, a deepening of that relationship um, and it does come with a number of challenges for Solomon Islands in terms of management.
1: Thank you for that. Uh, Look, if you're just joining us, uh, we are speaking with Massey University International uh, Security Lecturer and Pacific Expert Dr Anna Poles. Doctor, I want to ask, though, you have actually written an article for the Lowy Institute about the risk this competition sort of has between Australia and China uh, and how that poses for the security of Solomon Islands. I mean, what are those actual risks?
7: Well, as i said before the, the security sector in solomon islands has become a very contested and crowded space you have these two uh, australia um, which has been the primary security partner of choice for solomon islands for a very long time and 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 china uh, as as a growing security partner uh, and there is concern that geopolitical competition uh, is spilling over into security sectors in the region, and that this could undermine peace and security efforts. And of course, you know there are legacy issues in Solomon Islands, given the very recent tensions, uh, the conflict uh, which led to the Australian-led regional assistance mission to Solomon Islands, of which the 20th anniversary is this month. And there are concerns now that having uh, two security stakeholders, well, actually three security stakeholders, uh, in Solomon Islands, Solomon Islands security. Uh, force, of course, a of course, police force, and then Australia and China it could could complicate matters. And Australia's call for transparency of this implementation plan is because they're obviously concerned that it could contain provisions which could shift the operating environment for Australian defence um, and policing personnel who are on the ground in the Solomons. Uh, and that'll reduce interoperability between the AFP, for example, and Solomon Islands counterparts, and critically, that it speaks to the fact that Chinese police are establishing effectively a presence mission in Solomon Islands. So there are some you know, very sort of uh, tactical and operational concerns about this uh, and the impact that this could have on local peace and security dynamics in Solomon Islands, which, are, which have been tenuous uh, and, and, and easily under pressure, uh, as well as the broader strategic concerns about geopolitical competition in the Pacific.
1: Yeah, very much. A bit of a power struggle there, isn't it? Um, look, you've also identified the upcoming Pacific Games as a worrying point of potential friction. Why is that?
7: Well, that's because, uh, and and this is obviously, you know, it's a possible possible point of friction uh, because, again, having uh, Australian police and and and, and defence personnel uh, there under the Solomon Islands. Uh, Assistance Force, International Assistance Force, uh, which deployed to Solomon Islands following the riots in 2021. And then, of course, having the Chinese policing presence as well. And there are concerns there with respect to how these three different uh National of three different forces, security forces, Australia, Solomon Islands, and China, are going to actually work together. Uh, and there are concerns around things such as um, uh, communications. You know, uh, there, there's a clear need to have some form of sort of crisis hotline uh, put in place for, for crisis management. And there are concerns with respect to. If there is any sort of instability of any kind uh, in Honiara at the time of the games, how do these how do these uh, security forces work together? Uh, you know, how does it you know, things like chain of command uh, operate? Uh, who has primacy and so forth? And the the potential there for miscommunication could be quite high. <laughs>
1: Doctor, what do you think could be done to uh, de-escalate this uh, sort of competition and the subsequent risks? I mean, does Mr Songavari need to wind back uh, the whole hedging of Australia and China?
7: Well, I think I mean, he, he's, he is seeking to pursue the, uh, the national interests of uh, national priorities of, of his country, which are development, and that's you know completely understandable, particularly with respect to infrastructure. Uh, but I think that there are... There is a leadership role here for for both the Pacific Islands Forum as a preeminent political body in the region uh, to take a leading role with respect to to perhaps drawing something of a a red line when it comes to geopolitical competition to ensure that it doesn't destabilise the region and it doesn't undermine peace and security efforts within countries as well. Uh, And... Prime Minister Sogavare, uh, and perhaps could also take a leadership role here in seeking to sort of de- ensure that strategic competition within his country uh, does deescalate, and that goes beyond the hedging that he's sought to do uh, so far. Uh, but the challenges here is that in the security space it is, very, it is you know, already such a, a, a tense and, and uh, area and very unlikely to be to ensue to any sort of real kind of cooperation um, uh, possibilities here. But more broadly, there does need to be a conversation at the regional level and at the national levels around how to de-escalate geopolitical competition.
1: Awesome. Hey, look, Doctor, uh, we really do appreciate your time this morning. Uh, thank you again, and hopefully we'll get to catch up next time.
7: Yeah. That is Doctor, My pleasure.
1: Thank you very much. No worries. That is Dr. Anna Poles Massey University International Security Lecturer and Pacific expert uh, joining us this morning. Well, Kiribati uh, today is celebrating its 44th anniversary of independence. The country gained independence from the United Kingdom in 1979. So joining us on the line this morning is Randy Buckley the Secretary for Kiripas Namu Incorporated in the South Island of Aotearoa. With that I say Kamuna Māori, Randy, how are you
8: doing? Uh, Kona Māori, uh Aggie uh, and um, your listeners, this beautiful morning. Yeah, come is for one, and come the for uh, more than one.
1: <laughs> Thank you very much for that. Uh, look, happy weekend today, today in Kiribati, and of course today is uh, Kiribati Independence Day. Would love to know what does it actually really mean, the independence or the day itself, mean to you?
8: Yes, um, forty-four years ago, we were um, under the British government, and um, they um, let us have our independence, but. This day, is Independence Day for us, uh, especially for us um, outside Kiribati, is a day of you know, celebrating our culture, a uh, day to come together and share our language, our song, our dancing and stories here. Yeah. So it's all about celebrating our culture.
1: Yeah, well, that's it. Look, I know it's only one week that you celebrate uh, Kiripas Language Week in New Zealand. But reality is you celebrate being e-kiripas every day. So I'm wondering what are some of the celebrations that you guys are going to be doing this week?
8: Well, we are um, so, yeah, we're so um, um, thankful here in uh, Aotearoa, New Zealand, that we government um, um, allocates a week for weekend or the, the, the language week for Kidibes. Um the start of for us in um uh, Othepute, uh Danesian, we start our language week with the um server as uh small is kind of celebration, and hosted by the Ministry of uh, for children, uh, known here as Oranga Tamariki, and we have staff all over New Zealand come together to Dunedin and host us, and we share with them our culture, you know, and our dance, our stories, and yeah, you know, we yeah things like that. But and um, because today is our Independence Day, and in New Zealand, some of us are working, so we dedicate this coming Saturday. Um, and we can all go to Emakago uh, for everybody in the South Island, and we'll have a, a big celebration there. And we're so happy to have um, we're going to have Honorable Minister from Pacific People, Honorable Barbara um, Edmonds, to, uh, she's going to be with us there. Yeah, so it's going to be we're looking forward to for that. What what do you know
1: any sort of happenings that are uh, going on back at home with any festivities?
8: Um, back home, it's always a big celebration. Of the year this morning, they they, they, they they normally have a like a a, a, a parade. So police are there, uh, everybody from schools around um, the main island, Tarawa, and some people from the out islands come and join too. Um, um, so every um, 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 you know um, representative from um, you know um, New Zealand tournaments uh, Australian, you know all the. Um, 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 representative the the yeah. So they're gonna have the uh, the the parade mostly in the morning. And last night um they have they, they had duty contest, they will have um our local wrestling which we call it the Bumane. Um so there's a lot of going there's will be um racing with a canoe or we call it the bar. So there's a lot and lots of types of games. There. The Orian, this one is kind of a like a ball made out of like so kind of a heavy ball made out of um, um, string, but it's quite heavy and they will, you know, throw it and you catch it, um, which is quite a bit of a dangerous game, but they, they know how to play it. So it's many things happening in in Kiribati um, and at the moment they have a week um, holiday. So <laughs> there's a lot of going on there. Yeah, yeah. Excuse me. <clears throat>
1: Randy I do yeah. want I do want to ask though like on a serious note uh, we understand that you know your beautiful homeland uh, is affected by climate change right one of the most vulnerable to this and of course what that does it affects the health food security and really the reality of relocation uh, for your people I mean uh, yeah your take on that what are your thoughts on possibly a population that's only sitting over hundred thirty three thousand how does that make you feel though
5: mm.
8: I think this um, is quite, um, you know, like um, sad said, you know, like it's quite um, unfortunate for us. Um, and for your listeners that doesn't know, really know about Kiribati, I just want to tell them that, you know, here too in New Zealand, they don't know that we don't have mountains. And your dining table is the average kind of height of our land above sea level. So it is quite low. And I, I just came back two or nine days ago from Kiribati, and I was there for three weeks. The thing that changed, twelve years ago when I was there, um, before I left Kinabas twelve years in two thousand and eleven, um, we have these things. Um, um, they call it king tides, or, or the, you know, for the for the sea. And we don't normally have that when we're little. When I was young, um, but when I was there, I had my first son in two thousand and nine. And we have alerts of tsunami and the waves, you know, um, the King tides they just come, you know, the wave just come up the land and the land where I was, my dad's land is only 100, about 150 um, uh, meters from the sea to the ocean, the lagoon to the ocean side. So it's quite a very narrow place and the waves just come up. Um, so while so well, I was there now, I know after 12 years, when I left, go back there, the thing that affects the, our lives there is water, which is what we need to, you know, to survive. And I was there for three weeks and I, I have to buy water um, every day for drinking um, from a, a new place that they change groundwater into fresh water because our groundwater now is salty. Um, so when you have a shower, the soap doesn't work. So I have to use shampoo instead um, to shower with because, because the soap it, it doesn't really work so it is, it's climate change already happening um, in Kiribati and, and, and rising sea level affects our water because we depend on groundwater and our water length is very narrow and now it's even narrower than before because it's saltier. Um, wow. But that's our oh, yeah.
1: Thank you for sharing that, Randy. Yeah, definitely, it obviously sounds like so much has changed already there in the homeland. Um, and you've already—I felt like I've already learned quite a bit uh, with what you've sh- um, shared this morning. What is though, maybe one thing you wish more people knew about Gidibas?
8: Um, I want people to know <coughs> that Gidibas, excuse me, is a transliteration of, of, of Gilbert um, which is comes from the name of. Uh, Captain Thomas Gilbert, we, we, uh, a man that came across our island in 1718-88. And I want people to know that our own original name is, is not Kiribati, it's Tungaru. And to all your listeners, especially the ones that come from Kiribati, um, let's um, embrace our original name, Tungaru, which with a very um, special meaning from our ancestors. So yeah, Tungaru is our original name. So we'll, I would love to be called you know, itungaru, or, you know, um, uh, because Kiribati is here. Yeah, um, I hope we put back our name, um, which is our original name. So, yeah, that's what I wish our name, Tungaru, to be known.
1: I love that. Thank you very much for clarifying that for all our listeners this morning. If, again, because it is, uh, you know, Kiribati Language Week, is there an encouragement that you'd like to give to those who are possibly trying to learn a little bit more about the language and culture?
8: Yes, yes. Um, it's not many of us. It's only 130,000 people. Mm-hmm. So we would love um, in the world. So we would love to have more people um, know our language and culture. So it is a good place to start with our language week. Come and join us in our celebrations. We are very happy and welcoming people. So don't be shy. And mm-hmm. also, internet, this, you know, these days is very, you know, like, have a lot of information. So a word, a simple word is like a word like Melody, which is our greeting would be a good start for you to learn and, and come and, and separate with us and we'll teach you more.
1: Love that, Randy. Ko rabua. I just want to say thank you for your time this morning. Really appreciate it.
8: Thanks, thanks very much to um, 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 Aggie and thanks for helping me and uh, having me on your radio.
1: No to worries. No worries. That is Randy Bakiua live from Aotearoa. I'm Aggie Dubo here on Pacific Beat.